your mess can become your message, right? Mm. Whatever you have lived through, if used appropriately, could be motivation for change rather than staying in a view of victimhood. Like I, I don't see myself as a victim of society or I don't look at my transition as a as a prison, I look at it as an opportunity for empowerment in each each thing that I've had to endure or go through in my life as an opportunity to learn what it is that my community needs and then fight for that. Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarland, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And my conversation this week is with Jace Carver, a Windsor trans activist, and it was actually Dana who introduced me. So... Go ahead, I'm Dana. very proud to be able to say that I know Jace um, at least a little bit. We are friends. I'd like to be closer friends with her in the future because she's just the most incredible person, as you will hear. Jace established an organization called uh, Windsor-Essex Trans Support um, in this area last year. And shockingly to me, I hadn't realized that it is actually the very first transgender drop-in and resource center in Canada. Yeah. That's incredible. And she's the executive director and I think the force of nature behind the organization yes. because in one year they have managed to accomplish just incredible things. So previously, Jason worked at the Windsor Welcome Center for Women, a women's shelter here in the city. And she was an advocate on homelessness issues. A satellite office of WE Transport off opened in Leamington in January of 2019, so just a couple months ago. Uh, so just a little bit about the organization, and we'll be posting, of course, their website on our podcast page. But they offer discussion groups and support for trans and gender-questioning people, and they offer training for private and not-for-profit organizations, which you'll hear more it's about. So interesting. It's so interesting. Uh, so from their website, they've got this great quote. So their mission is to help businesses and service providers who are interested in creating and sustaining gender and sexual diversive inclusive spaces and services. Jace has also addressed the federal status of women committee at the House of Commons. Um, and she is just... So articulate. So amazing. She's a, I think of her, every time I talk to her, and again, it, it came across in this interview that you had with her, she's a force of nature and she's just got this driven purpose for this organization and you'll hear what that kind of comes out of and her story is incredible so let's listen thank you so much for doing this really appreciate it so i'm going to jump right in here and start with asking you if you would be willing to share your own journey as a trans woman, and in particular, could you say a bit about the process that you went through in order to find the real you? Sure. I, I understood that there was differences in, in who I was as a person at a very young age, but I couldn't really understand mm. what that was. I remember the first time I identified to my family as female. It was to my mom. I was about four years old. I had a younger sister, and I really didn't see the differences between her and I. So right. there was a lot of gender confusion at a very young uh -huh. age. And, but quickly I was told the difference between boys and girls. And I remember that being the first time that I understood it was my responsibility to be whatever I, I was expected to be. In order to be accepted by my family, I was raised in an alcoholic and religious household. 
So identities like mine were not necessarily accepted, and it was a very abusive environment. So I actually would would sustain abuse just for identifying or being too feminine. You said that when you were about four years old and you had a younger sister, you started questioning, well, why am I getting treated differently to my younger sister? Why am I getting treated like, you know, quote, unquote, a boy? So can you give me any examples of that? It's really real. Well, you know, there there's clearly different gender roles that society puts us in, yes. right? So the yes. expectation to be softer with young girls and harder mm-hmm. on young boys, even okay. just right down to why I couldn't play with the same toys or wear the right. same clothes. I, I really didn't understand why that was something that was frowned upon. Because of the abuse in my household, I ran away a lot in my teen years. Mm-hmm. I had, uh, was homeless for a period of time. Uh, and then had met my, who was my partner for 22 years at the age, in, in our final year of high school. So I think 17-ish. And uh, he was, we were the only two out. We would have been considered gay. I don't consider myself gay today, but right. um, we would have been considered the only two out gay people in our high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the 90s, that was already tough enough, you know. But right, I figured, right. And it was I also, figured, you know, the only out category, right? I mean... That, yeah. that was, as you say, that was hard enough. I figured that I would, I could make a choice to just live as a gay person. And this person, you know, saved me from a, an abusive household. He was kicked out at 15 for being gay. So when we had met each other, he was 18, I was 17, and he was already living on his own. So we started to try to build a life together. Right, um, right. But it wasn't a life based on my true identity or any kind of honesty. Right, right. it but, was an alliance. But it was not necessarily your relationship. Right? Actually, quite codependent, really, because yeah. we were both we both came from marginalized communities at that time. Mm. Both came from abusive households, so uh, it was it became quite codependent, right? And um, you know, we had everything on paper that you're supposed to want as adults. You know, I had an above mm. average earning career. We were married. We got married when it was legal, and had foster kids and the two dogs and the car and the house oh. and all those things. Right. And I still wanted to die all the time. I still was because very this wasn't suicidal. Who you really were. Yeah, but I I believed I was taught at a very young age that love came with consequences, and so it was my responsibility to be whatever Stephen needed to, me to be in order to be eligible for his love, you know, and for him to stick around. And so when it was about 2012 when I really started to evaluate who I was as a person and and come to the understanding that unless I came out that I was probably going to attempt suicide. And so back then, the process of transition was a little different than it was today. We were just adopted into the Human Rights Code uh, provincially, uh, trans-identified people. I started to explore what the options were for transition services and support, Mm -hmm. and there was very minimal. Um, There was a regulation through the WPATH, which is the World Standard of Trans Healthcare, that you needed to see a psychiatrist and get a uh, diagnosis of gender dysphoria as a mental illness prior to any services. As a mental illness. As a mental illness, yes. Which is no longer in a DSM. It's no longer right. considered a mental right. illness. And, uh, and then you would be referred to CAMH in Toronto, which was like that one-stop shop for access to trans services. Okay. So they would be able to make all your referrals to any other doctors that you needed. So I saw, I went and saw a psychiatrist here locally in Windsor, oh. and uh, unfortunately they didn't believe that trans-identified people existed. And oh, so gosh. they told me I had bipolar disorder and adult oh. ADHD. And I wanted that to be true because I was so afraid that once I transitioned, I would lose my husband, my job, oh. my oh. life that I had built. So I held on you to that. You wanted to believe it. 
I, I held on to that diagnosis. Yeah. I took those medications. And oh. unfortunately, I ended up addicted to those medications. And between 2012 and 2015, I slowly, through active addiction, dismantled my entire life. Mm. Uh, had to leave work. Mm. Uh, and then was uh, living in my car. And uh, it was in 2015 that um, I made the decision that I would have to come out to my family, including my partner. Let me ask you, Chase. I mean, in such an, an incredibly vulnerable place by this point. Yes. And with the addiction issues and, you know, your career up in smoke. And how did you find the strength to make that decision? I I really don't know. Like, when I look back, um, sorry. when I look back at my life, I get, I become very grateful that something greater than me kept me motivated to stay alive. And because, you reached for what you needed at the moment yeah. that you absolutely had to. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make you upset, no. but it, just, it was just so striking to me that you were describing this person who was completely isolated and then had to make this incredibly difficult decision, but you did it. Yeah, and in order to do that, I knew that, and the laws had changed, or the standard of healthcare had changed over those years, and so I knew at this point that I could go to my family doctor and get a referral to an endocrinologist and begin the process to medically transition. Right. But in order you to do that, you didn't need that psychiatrist to no. tell you that you were mentally ill because you wanted to transition. Good, yeah. right? So and um, and so I began that process in 2015. But but before I could do that, I really knew that I would have to get well um, regarding my right. drug addiction. So starting okay. to try to access addiction services as a trans-identified person became the next barrier um, that I had to overcome. You know, I was still physically what society would say looking like a male and identifying as female. And so having to be streamlined sometimes into male supports where I was yeah. at risk, um, became yeah. very uncomfortable, very abrasive. And then I was, uh, I, I attended a treatment center in Thamesville and I was the first pre-hormone trans woman to graduate that program. Um, but I very much was in isolation because they had not had this experience before. So I was not housed with males or females. I was housed in a building by myself on your and own oh. they do things differently now and i work very well with that organization today and they've really been uh, making some great changes in service delivery but for that reason i was not able to stay um in in recovery after after being discharged from that program i spent another full year living in my car in active oh. addiction and in, po- in poverty um and um doing things i would not like to read us in order to survive um, I mean, this brings us to what you're doing now in many ways, Jay, it does. With, with W Trans Support, because I know that your focus is on providing safe, supportive places for, for discussions among individuals, whether yes. they're questioning their gender or they're going through transition or whatever. And you've already described how you did not have those spaces. You didn't yes. have those safe spaces. So this must be part of why you're so motivated now to provide them for others. It's hundred percent. I believe that um, your mess can become your message, right? Mm. Whatever you have lived through could be the motive. If if used appropriately, could be motivation for change, rather than staying in uh, a view of victimhood. Like I, I don't see myself as a victim of society, or I don't look at my transition as a as a prison. I look at it as an opportunity for empowerment in each each thing that I've had to endure or go through in my life as an opportunity to learn what it is that my community needs and then fight for that. I'm in a position where I'm 
capable of doing that today. You know, but tell, I, tell, tell the, the people who are listening to this just a few few words sure. about WE Trans Support and you know, get that message out there. So our formal title is Windsor-Essex Transgender and Allied Support, and we really did start as a 1-800 number out of my car. Um, mm. That was my Gosh. office. Yeah. Um, I had become, I had gone back to living with my now ex-partner. I, I was th- going through medical transition in sobriety. And what I knew is that I, I didn't want other trans people to have to experience early transition the way that I did without any support. You know, many of us lose our families, our partners, and our loved ones in, while in transition. And there's a real lack of understanding in service delivery in the greater community systems are still set up for trans-identified people to be oppressed. Um, And so I created a 1-800 number where trans people throughout our community could call, and I would meet them wherever was comfortable for them, and we would unpack what their goals were for transition, and then I would help make referrals. It was very much the work I was doing prior to active addiction uh, for another organization. And so I I, I knew that, you know, doing everything person-centered because transition is so different for each individual. There's no yeah. right or wrong way to do it was the way to go. And all I wanted to do was be able to, you know, help a couple people. And then from there, it started to grow. More Noble. people started to call. So mm-hmm. we knew that we need to start some support groups. So we started our trans spectrum group, which is an early exploration of gender identity. And our T2 families in transition to support families who had a person mm-hmm. they loved that were transitioning. Um, and from there, the call for more services came, and yes. so we we got the keys to our first drop-in center, which is Canada's first trans and family-specific drop-in center. Wow! Um, in May of 2018, and since then we've had 3,118 visits for different services and supports. Amazing. We've started a social enterprise within, which is a consulting firm called We Trans Support Consulting, where we uh, are contracted by healthcare facilities and organizations to bring trans-inclusive training to organizations and then do full facilities and policy audits as well. So you can actually start making this matter in the systemic organization of other organizations and agencies as well. That's absolutely fantastic. I know, you know, that one of the things that I've read a little bit about you, Chase, is that one of the things that you really stand on is how important that the people who need the services should design the services. And I mean, obviously that's that's borne out by your story and by the creation of WE Trans Support. Can, can you say a bit about how the trans and the non-binary community are, are, are now, you know, through the work you've done, you know, how they are able to take the lead in designing these services? You talked about the consulting to other organizations. Can you, can you give me some examples of where that's starting to happen? We've contracted a three-year contract with Hotel Degrees Healthcare. Right. Facilities audits and uh, policy audits, as well as training to all of their staff at every level from executive to frontline. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was one of our, our biggest contracts. We've also contracted with Assisted Living Southern Ontario to provide the same services there. Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Windsor, Essex, I believe, Sarnia, and London. Um, we, this is a pretty good client list. This is really happening. And when you, when you do this work, talking to you makes me think that, you know, maybe you do do all of this. But actually, I'm sure that in reality, there are other people doing this. So do you have other people in the trans community who are doing this work, who are providing these services that are working with you? Peer organization-led model is not mm-hmm. a new model. We see it in, in cultural uh, communities across yes. Windsor-Essex. 
but for some reason it's still seen as not a viable form of services and supports in the trans community, and that's because mm-hmm. we're seen as incapacitated, incapable, and mentally ill. So we we are we are showing by we trans support existing in this community and continuing to overcome the violence towards us in the community and the lateral violence within the lesbian, gay, and bisexual community that we we are capable. We have yeah. built something that yeah. is being recognized nationally as a standard for support for trans-identified people. What we need is for service providers in the greater community to work with us. To get on board, right. To get on board and work yeah. with us. The same way that you work with indigenous populations or uh, newcomer populations or populations from, with, of people uh, of color, it's the same way that we would want you to work yeah, with our and, and respecting I, that you need to be the people in charge of the services that you and your community need. Absolutely. And not by image. Yeah, yeah. Not by image, but by actual lateral partnership. Right, and I'm right. so grateful that we have such an active and strong trans community here because even when the funds are not there, these people show up. They make sure their voices are heard. They are visible. Mm-hmm. And we complete, we always 100% consult our community before we introduce new programming, change programming, before anything happens, we do a community consultation um, with our clients. So we send out yeah. surveys. We also have a town hall to make sure that it's being met. And then we look at the stats for Southwest Ontario to see what's working in other communities. Right. Right. And we talk to leaders of other communities to see what they're doing that might be working. So many of the, the really effective social justice pieces that we featured on the podcast Jason, and I'm so happy to hear you say that because one of the one of the things we fight for all the time at the Self-Represented Litigants Project is that these people need to be involved in the planning of new services. That it's not enough just to say, uh, you know, we the paternalistic um, others are going to tell you what's good for you. So, you know, that yeah. is something we, we definitely have in common. Before I let you go, because I do have to let you go in a minute, but yeah. I, I really want to ask you one final question, which, you know, in some ways is a very... Is, is, is my question, you know, is my question that I'm asking you to give me, you know, your experience and your insight to help me. And it's this, what do you think the most important things that cisgender individuals need to understand about the challenges that are being faced by people who are gender questioning and or transitioning? And what is it we need to know? And I know this is difficult to do in 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 a short <laughs> in a short way, but what is it we need to know that would help us to become people like me to become both more knowledgeable and more empathetic and more helpfully, usefully, actively supportive of the trans community? Okay, so we could do a whole episode on that. So, <laughs> Maybe we should. Uh, what I want to say is that we still wake up. At, we're about twenty years behind in in social justice in our social justice and freedoms than lesbian, gay, and bisexual people. So yes. people assume because being lay, lesbian, gay, and bisexual is far more mainstream that we live with that same privilege as they do, but we don't. Mm-hmm. We have a lack of access to employment. We have a lack of access to health care. We get turned away from health care all the time. And then we even have people from our own community. There's so much lateral violence to say, we've, you know, well, we're so far ahead. Why are you complaining? because they, they could not live a day in our shoes. It's difficult to go grocery shopping, to get employed, and it's not because we are ashamed of who we are. It's because of the violence that we face when we do these right. things. And so when you see transphobic violence happening in the community, 
don't sit back and just watch what happen. Speak up even if you don't know the trans person that the violence is being uh, forced against. And also, if there's service providers out there, um, we this is another form of violence that continues to happen in our community, and we need to start denouncing that. Start working and supporting trans organizations instead of competing against us. Cisgender society. We've had our services and supports delivered by cisgender society in in cisnormative spaces for yeah. so long, and yeah. trans people are dying because they're not accessing them because of the violence that they face when they do, or the fear that they will face violence when accessing them. So right. we've worked with service, I mean, we there's been service providers even in our own community that just developed their own trans programming without consulting our community mm. based on a research project from Toronto. Well, that's not going to meet the needs of somebody who's transitioning in Windsor Estes. Right. Please right. call us. We right. don't need to run all the programming. We would love to work with other organizations and provide them our data to make sure you're actually meeting the needs of our community and provide a narrative that it is safe to go to your organization. Okay, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And your work is fantastic. Oh, thanks so much for your time. So as I said off the top, um, this was such an incredible conversation and Jace is so impressive and there's so much here. And I think in some ways her story is difficult to hear. Um, And unfortunately, you know, a lot of other uh, questioning and transgender people around the world have similar stories. Yeah, such a hard story, such a hard story, but one that we know gets repeated over and Mm -hmm. over again. And, you know, I was especially struck with the fact that she has lived all these experiences of being excluded from services. She's gone to services that haven't made her feel safe and taken care of her. And so that's where her drive's coming from now to provide these services for her own community. Which speaks to something that you and I both like so much that we both wrote it down in our notes, which was her line that (laughs) your mess can become your message. And I think that encapsulates just, you know, what makes Jay so incredible is she's taken everything that she's gone through, everything that that this world has, has put her through, all the crap, and has turned it into this incredible mission. Yeah. Yeah, and the idea that, you know, she had her 1-800 number initially out of her car when yeah. she was living in her car. I mean, that says something about somebody's commitment to activism mm-hmm. and to helping their community. And the other thing I loved about what she talked about was her emphasis on peer-driven mm-hmm. programming. In other words, mm-hmm. that people within the trans community ought to be the ones who develop the services, the training, the models. As she somewhat caustically put it, <laughs> peer-led support is not a new model. We mm-hmm. do this in many, many other communities, with indigenous communities, with communities of color, mm-hmm. all kinds of different communities, and we need to do that also here for the trans community. And then finally, I think we can't do better than to re-emphasize what Jay said so powerfully at the end of your conversation when you asked her yeah. what um, cis people can do to support uh, questioning and transgender people, which is to stand up against uh, transphobia and trans violence. And recognize it when it's happening. Yep. And to push for the support services that are needed. I found it, again, it was such an interesting and shocking statement when she said that the trans community is... 20 years behind in social justice, yes. behind even gay and lesbian groups, which, I mean, you know, we see what they go through, and yes. it's shocking that the trans community is even that much further behind. Yeah. We need a lot of catch-up, and I think that Jace and her organization are going to be in the vanguard of that catch-up. 
In Other News. Welcome back to another segment of In Other News, where we share some updates from the world of access to justice. First up, we're sharing a great article by John Paul Boyd, a mediator, former executive director of the Canadian Research Institute for Law and the Family, and an active advocate for access to justice. The article, which was written on Lawyers Daily, reflects on how family justice was an invisible issue in the recent Alberta election, and that family law reform is a topic that needs to be discussed more. The article notes that justice reform typically results in discussions of criminal justice or of legal aid. And while they are important subjects of justice reform, family law touches the lives of so many people. The article raises some interesting questions to reflect on and presents a call to action to be more involved in demanding reform from our governments and institutions. Next up, the Justice for All reports by the Task Force on Justice was recently published. And this report shares some shocking realizations of the state of access to justice around the world. In particular, the report notes that at least 253 million people live in extreme conditions of injustice, that 1.5 billion people cannot resolve their everyday justice problems, and that 4.5 billion people are excluded from the opportunities that the law provides. Overall, 5.1 billion people, or two-thirds of the world's population, lack meaningful access to justice. Additionally, Structural inequalities are reflected in the justice gap, meaning that vulnerable groups find it hardest to access justice. Furthermore, the lost income and stress-related illness due to seeking legal redress can cost countries up to 3% of their annual GDP. The report outlines in more detail why investment in justice reform results in positive social and economic benefits. We've linked to the report's website, which includes an overview, fact sheets, and graphics that highlight conclusions and recommendations of the report. We encourage all of our listeners to take a look. For our third story, concluding with something more positive, we're sharing two updates from the Canadian East Coast about steps towards access to justice for underserviced communities. In the first update, a citizens' advocacy group has received a grant from the Law Foundation of PEI to do research on access to justice for individuals who have an intellectual disability. The group is called PEI Citizen Advocacy, and they're a nonprofit that connects people with intellectual disabilities to volunteers in the community. The second East Coast update is that the Nova Scotia Legal Aid Commission is taking steps to provide better access to justice for the black community through the creation of its first African Nova Scotian social worker position. Sharnell Brooks is the social worker who has been hired for this position, and she will be working with clients in the child protection, criminal, family, and youth justice systems. We're excited by these two updates, and we're hopeful that more provinces find ways to incorporate the needs of underserviced or marginalized communities in their access to justice ventures. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next week for a conversation with Kate Kehoe, a lawyer who, in addition to having a very full resume, recently represented NSRLP when we had intervener status at the Ontario Court of Appeal. 